0: If you have a Bible this morning, turn with me uh, to the book of Philippians. Let's go to chapter 2. We want to pick up our study in verse 12, and we want to take it to the conclusion uh, up to verse 30. But if you'll notice the topic this morning, we want to look at this place of obedience. It produces uh, servants. Now let me just set this up. We know as we study chapter 1, Paul is in prison in Rome. We know that it's house arrest, but he's still unattached from the church at Philippi. He's unattached from all the churches. And yet God had a plan. God had a reason. As Paul is there in house arrest, he was able to minister to those that would come. He was able to pin four epistles. They're called the four prison epistles. And so God knew obviously what he was doing. And so now Paul looks at this place of obedience for the Philippians. He looks at that place of obedience in his own life and how it produces servants. Paul himself, we know, was a servant. Even there in house arrest he was serving. But he's going to highly recommend young Timothy. And and Timothy is an interesting character. When when we get uh, to the book of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, he was a young man. Paul's going to call him his spiritual son in the Lord. Timothy was brought up by his his mother and his grandmother in Christ. But he didn't have that father figure. And Paul becomes that uh, spiritual dad in his life. But it wasn't without trial for Timothy, as Paul has to deal with his immaturity. He was a young man, and I believe he was ready to quit the ministry, because the ministry can be difficult at times, and we're going to see that with Epaphroditus here. Epaphroditus is a Greek man that comes to saving grace, and he is sent from Philippi to Paul to minister to him there in a Roman prison. He brings a love gift. He brings a financial gift to him. And then he stays with Paul, and he ministers there with Paul. He had the freedom to do that in the Roman prison. But something happens to Epaphroditus. He gets very sick. He gets very ill. To the point, Paul's going to share, almost death. And so here you come to obedience. You come to the place of a servant's heart. And in a sense, your payment, your gratitude, your reward, you almost die. And so trials are part of the ministry. And so Paul's going to speak about this obedience, that it will produce uh, servants' hearts. Now, I was just kind of looking at this. The word obedience means to carry out the word and will of another person. But here, especially the will of God. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the word obey is related to the idea, now listen, to hear and to listen. To hear and to listen to the Word of God. To hear and to listen to what the Holy Spirit has to say to you. Obedience is a positive, active response to what a person hears and listens to. God summons people to active obedience of His revelation, of His Word. And so man's failure to uh, obey God results in judgment. That's what the whole book of Revelation is about. In the Old Testament covenant between God and man, obedience was the basis for knowing God's blessing and favor. Listen to this text. Write it down. I'll read it to you. In the book of Exodus, in chapter 19, verse 5, Moses is obviously writing, but these are the words of God. If you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. God speaking to the Old Testament church, Old Testament saints. But the blessing that was given to Israel is the same blessing given, given to us. God calls us his peculiar treasure. Peter writes and he says that uh, we're sojourners, we're just passing through. But then he calls us a royal priesthood, a people of God. We are a peculiar people. We are different. We're set apart for the glory of God. Now, write this verse down. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. But let me just set it up. Samuel, the prophet of God, emphasized that God's pleasure was not in sacrifice, but in obedience. Now, we know that Saul had gone uh, to destroy the Amalekites. That was the prophecy. Go and utterly destroy them. Well, when the victory was taken, Saul comes back. And he brings back uh, the king of the Amalekites, Agag. And then he brings back choice sheep. And he says they were for the offering unto the Lord. And why did he bring King Agag? I love what one of my commentaries said that he brought him back as a trophy. Look at the victory that I brought. I brought it for God. I brought the choice sheep, the choice lambs for God. But yet Samuel had given the prophecy. God said to utterly destroy them. And the proof of that is Samuel reaches over and takes Saul's sword. And he just literally cuts Agag into pieces. And then the sheep were destroyed. But listen to the scripture. 1 Samuel 15, 22, Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, listen, the contrast, as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Saul did not obey the voice of the Lord. And sometimes we fall trapped to that, and we don't obey the voice of the Lord, yet we can go to the agape box. Yet we can, you know, give people food to eat. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's good. But are we obeying God's word? God says in his word, we're not to lie, we're not to cheat, we're not to curse. Are we still doing those things? God's word says we're not to commit fornication or adultery. Are we still doing those things? And so God calls us to the place of obedience, not to sacrifice. You see, anybody can make a sacrifice, but can you truly obey God? And that's what Paul's going to speak, because if we're truly obeying God, then he'll bring us to that place of serving him and serving others. Now, in the New Testament, take this down. It's going to be some homework for you. In the book of Romans, in chapter 5, verse 12 through 21. And let me just set this up for you. In the New Testament, the obedience of Christ stands in contrast to the disobedience of Adam. That's what Paul deals with in Romans chapter 5. The disobedience of Adam, listen, it brought death, but the perfect obedience of Christ brought grace, righteousness, and life, life eternal. So when we come to the place, listen, of obedience, what does God give us? He gives us salvation. He bestows upon us his grace, unmerited favor. I deserve judgment, but he gives me grace. Then he bestows righteousness in me. I was wrong living for God, and now I'm right living for God. And then he gives me life. What life? Life eternal. Before that, I did not have life. I was just meandering. And so Paul is speaking about obedience of Timothy, obedience of Epaphroditus, obedience of himself to the Lord, even being incarcerated in prison. And that obedience brings forth a servant's heart. And bottom line, maybe you'll never be in the pulpit. You'll never be the pastor of a church. You'll never be the wife of a pastor. Maybe you'll never share a Bible study. But God still calls us to serve. Maybe you're not going to even be an usher or work with the children in the back or work in the sound ministry. But God calls us to serve. This past week, it was Thanksgiving week. You responded. You brought in turkeys, you brought in food, and we distributed to many families. And this is great, but what happens after Thanksgiving? You see, we're called to serve year round. Something unique has happened here in our church because we're in the downtown mall. We have a pantry. You continually supply that pantry through the year, Uh, through the offerings, through the gifts, through the tithing. We take care of the bills and the salaries and such. And then we always supply the, the pantry because it never fails. I'm not talking about Thanksgiving week. People come to this door or they call. We need some food and we don't turn anybody back. And through the years, I've told the people, ask them, who sent you here? Because I've done that. And it's to my amazement, they say, such and such church said, go to Calvary Chapel. I used to get frustrated with that. Why don't you guys help them? I mean, you have the same Bible I have, but you know what? I don't complain no more. And I told the people, don't complain. If another church sends them here, we will take the blessing and we will reach out to these people. You see, that's a servant's heart. That's a servant's heart. And so Paul's going to be speaking of this now concerning his own servant's heart through obedience, but he's incarcerated. Timothy's obedience, Epaphroditus's obedience, and their servants unto the Lord. It's a beautiful uh, instructions of God's word. Now, verses 12 through 18, it speaks about this Christian obligation. And so listen to verse 12. Therefore, Paul says, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence. Back in Acts chapter 16, he was with them there at Philippi. And he ministered there at Philippi. Lydia came to saving grace. Uh, The Philippian jailer came to saving grace. His family came to saving grace. That was when they were, Paul was in their presence. But then he says, He says, but now much more in my absence. He's not with them. He's in a Roman house of rest. But listen to the words Paul uses here now. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Awesome words. So Paul's encouragement to the church at Philippi. I want you to see his heart. He uses the word, my beloved. But in the Greek, dear loved ones. It's a term of endearment, a term of compassion, a term of grace, a term of love. This is Paul's heart for them. You, the Christians at at Philippi, have always obeyed God, not just when I'm there, but here now, the more in my absence. I think that really stoked Paul's heart. Paul's in a Roman prison, and yet he gets report that they were still following the Lord. Praise God. From time to time, we get a a postcard or we get a letter of somebody that's left the ministry. They've moved out of state. And they'll say, we miss Calvary Chapel, Las Cruces. We miss the teachings there at the church. And then they'll often ask, can we get the CDs? And, And so we mail them out. But then we find out that they might be in a Baptist church, Methodist church. Maybe where they're at, there's no Calvary Chapel. And they find themselves serving God. What a blessing that they would take the teachings from this ministry, which are the teachings of God, and to use them for the glory of God. We had a woman years ago that was stationed in Frankfurt, Germany, with her husband, and uh, we used to send her tapes, and she, she would live for those tapes just to come uh, in the mail. And being overseas, it took time to get there. And when she was finally ready to leave, there was uh, she had a board full of our tapes. And one of the ladies, they used to you know, get together, and she was getting ready to come back state. And so one of the ladies says, so what are you going to do with all the tapes? And it just dawned on her. And she says, well, I was going to take them home, but do you want them? Oh, we, we want to share them with the other ladies now. And see, that's God's word. And we try to encourage, get the tapes or get the CDs, but pass them on. And so notice what he says here, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, we come to saving grace, but listen to what he's saying. Finish your own deliverance, that's your salvation. Finish the race. You've come to saving grace, but finish the race now. Nowhere in the Bible does it say to try to win the race. The race has already been won. But we want to finish the race. We want to finish the course One day when I enter the kingdom of God, when you enter the kingdom of God, I want to hear those words. You want to hear those words. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter the glory of God. That's what I want to hear. That's what you should desire to hear. So Paul says, finish your own deliverance. And so we ask the question, how do I do this? And he uses the words here with fear and trembling fear. That's what the Greek is saying. Be careful, church. When I think I just raise my hand on a Sunday morning or at a conference or, you know, at a concert or a movie, at a play, whatever, you know, the Christian uh, situation is there that I've been invited to. Be careful when I think I just raise my hand and ask Jesus to come into my life. I get a Bible, some literature, and I'm on my way to the pearly gates. I mean, you're saved. You're born again of the Holy Spirit. But where's discipleship? Where is commitment? Where is growing in the grace of God? We have to work at it with fear and trembling in the Lord. You see, P- Peter speaks about it so beautifully in his epistle. Some of you have been Christians for a long time, and you're still drinking the milk of the word. Man, you're 20 years old in the Lord. You're five years old in the Lord. You're... T- and start eating steak. Steak. Bottom line, moms, dads, you know what I'm talking about. You raise your children. You're not going to give a toddler a big T-bone steak. No way. The same reason you got a 20-year-old living at home, a 30-year-old living at home, you're going to still give them bottled milk? No, they need to progress. They need to grow. The same in the Word of God, church. We need to grow. I hope you're not the same person That you were when you came to saving grace. There needs to be maturity. And it's only going to happen through the word of God. And this is why you come on Sunday mornings and on Wednesday night. And hopefully you're going through the word of God on your own. And we have the lending library. We have everything accessible to you. There's no excuse that we cannot learn the word of God. And and so what's the word obedience? Listening and hearing. Hearing. There has to be application of the word of God. And so Paul says so beautifully, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Then he goes into verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. God is working in me, working in you, giving you. Listen, here's the translation, the desire to obey him. And the power to do what pleases him. To do God's will. To do God's will. Paul was obedient to the word of the Lord. Back in Acts chapter 9 in the Damascus highway, Paul was never the same after that. When he was blinded there and he was thrown off of his animal, he responds, is that you, Lord? What did we respond when we came to saving grace? Lord, here am I. Use me, Lord. Timothy, he was obedient to the Lord, and now he's becoming that servant of the Lord. Epaphroditus, the same thing. And the list goes on. Look at the life of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, James, Jude. I mean, all the New Testament saints. Ladies, Check out the women of the Bible. You've been studying that on on Monday nights. And we have some deaconesses that were not given titles. And sometimes titles spoil us. Oh, look what I got. Be careful. Man, we're called to serve God, each and every one of us. Why do I desire to obey God? Why do I desire to serve Him? Here's the answer. Because He first loved me. In Romans it says, while I was yet a sinner. That baffles the mind. Lord, you loved me while I was yet a sinner. Yes. Lord, you loved me when I was doing that junk back and such and such. Yes. How do I know that? Listen to the verse. You know it. In John 3, 16, I'm just going to paraphrase that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You ever contemplated on your own, just meditated, that, that Jesus died for me? He died for you? I mean, I wouldn't die for you. You wouldn't die for somebody else but he died for you. He died for me. Oh, that's how much Jesus loves me. That's how much Jesus loves you. Look at verse 14. Do all things now. Obviously, there was murmuring and complaining at the church at Philippi. It happens in every church. Trust me. Do all things without complaining and disputing. So as Christians, as Christians there at Philippi, as Christians here at Calvary Chapel, we're called to do all the things that God has called us to do. Do it without murmuring, without grumbling. Look at the next translation, without grudges. Man, serving the Lord is the best thing that ever happened to my life. You've been a Christian long enough, you'll agree with me. Do it without grudges. Serve God, here's another translation, without debating, without doubting, without disputing. And how do I do this? By having faith in God, having trust in God. It's synonymous. One of my commentaries said this, do all things as Christians without fighting, without altercations. We've had enough altercations in this ministry through the years. There's always an uprising. It never, ha- it never fails. Back in the time of Moses, he had a group called the Korites. They, they followed Korah. And if you follow that in the Old Testament, uh, they reached their doom so, sooner or Later. Do all things without murmuring, without complaining. Have faith in God. Trust God. Do all things without fighting, without altercation. Now listen, be patient and contend with your work as a Christian. See that you fall not out of the way, but to serve God. This is the reflection of your salvation. You want to do for God. It's not just about Sunday morning. It's about my life in Christianity now. We say, well, you're the pastor and and that should be part. No, it's part of your life, too. My place here, my job here, my ministry is to teach you. Your place is to listen, to hear in obedience and then make application. Again, don't be the uh, I hope you're not the same Christian you were last year. There has to be change. When when you come to true repentance, it's threefold. Listen, there has to be change of mind, a change of heart, and then a change of direction. There has to be an about face, 180 degree turn. I was going this way with drugs, this way with alcohol, this way with cursing, this way with lying, with cheating, with fornication. You know, fill in the gap. There has to be a turning around, and you got to walk the other way you got to walk the other way. And so Paul's describing this. And all of this is description of Timothy and Epaphroditus. These were these men that were obedient to the word of God, and God transformed them. Look at verse 15. That you may uh, become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation of people among whom you shine as lights in the world. Here's Paul writing to the Philippians, about 62 AD or so. Here we are 2007, so quickly coming into 2008. Are we living in a crooked and a perverse generation well, let me think, Pastor Bob. I don't know. Well, let me help you. Turn it on to the Fox Network. And then flip over to CSNBC and all the rest of them. Sooner or later, you're flipping channels and they're all saying the same thing. We're living in a corrupt, a corrupt world. Think about it. And it's not getting better, church. And so we need Christ. We need Christ. And listen, in the midst of all that darkness... In the midst of all that corruption, he calls us to be lights. In the midst of darkness, he calls us to be lights. We're called to be pure, uh, to be spotless, without sin, and yet we know we're sinners. He says uh, earlier, he says, that you may become blameless, that no one speak a word of fault against you. You know, I want what she has you know what I want? What he has. You know, it's interesting that Jesus said he was the light of the world. But when Jesus died, he resurrected. After 40 days, the ascension, he left it in charge to us. Now, listen, church, you're the light of the world. Remember that person that witnessed to you? There was something about that person. There was this light, basically, There was this attraction because when they came to you, especially if you knew their background. You say, you know what? I want what she has. We didn't know it at the time. We didn't know it was salvation. We didn't know it was the light of God in them now. We didn't know that they were sanctified, set apart, but we wanted what they have. I don't want to be like him. I want to be like her. I see God doing something. I don't understand it. Man, I'm going to take a step of faith, and let's see what God can do for me. Look at verse 16. And then he says to them, holding fast the word of life. Work out your own salvation and fear and trembling. How do I stay intact in my salvation? Holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain. The word is emptiness. I have not run in vain or labored in vain. And so here is a great exhortation in verse 16, and an exhortation of love, I may say. Paul says, hold tight to the word of life, so that when Christ returns, I will be proud of you, Paul says, that I I did not, that you did not also lose the race, but you finished the race, you finished the course. That my work is not empty, that your work is not empty, your work is not in vain. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you have to study the whole chapter. It's the doctrine of the resurrection. Paul says, Listen, if there is no resurrection, then we are men and women, pitied, miserable. It is in vain. You come to church for nothing, it's emptiness. You give of your tithes, your gifts, your offerings. It's emptiness. You come and pray. You come and study the word. You do this at home. If there is no resurrection, it's empty. But praise God. Jesus rose again and he sits at the right hand of the father. And we shared that last week and he makes intercession for me. But go back up to verse 16, just the beginning there. Holding fast the word of life. And so I have to ask, who is life? The word is Christ, we know that. And life is Christ also. Because listen to John fourteen six, the classic verse. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man gets to the Father but through me. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth. I am the life. And so here in verse 16, the beginning, hold fast the word of life. No matter what you're going through, church, hang on to Jesus. Hang on to Jesus. Why would you want to go back to Babylon? That's what Paul's telling the church at at Philippi. Why would you want to go back uh, to Egypt? You know, the proverb says the pig goes back uh, to uh, the miry pit. The dog goes back to his vomit. Well, we're not animals. Why would we go back to the world? Some of you know Christians. I've known Christians, and they've gone back to the world. The Bible says uh, they blow it 100 times more. It seems like, man, they're really in, in, in a rut now. Man, you weren't drinking that much when I knew you. You weren't doing that much drugs. Now look at you. And the devil wins, church. The devil wins. Look at verse 17 now. Yes, and if I am being poured out. This is Paul's heart from the prison there in Rome. He says, if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you. Man, can we say that? I'm being poured out in this trial, Lord. I'm being poured out in this hardship, Lord. I'm being poured out in this pain. Right now we know a couple of people in our church that are dying. They're dying of cancer. I'm being poured out, Lord. I'm hurting, Lord. Our good friend that lives in Abilene that was part of this church years ago, the first couple that we I'm, I got to marry, it was a blessing to me. She's being poured out now. She's dying of cancer. It's a matter of time. I got a cousin back in Southern California. He's a little bit older than I am. Two beautiful kids, and one of them just graduated. She became a doctor. He's all proud of his daughter. And the irony, she's a doctor. She can't do nothing for her dad. He's dying. They got him at the City of Hope. They're doing everything possible. Hang on to Jesus, because that's all you got left. Christians die too, church. It's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. But he says here, I'm being poured out. I'm being poured out. You see, Paul's in a Roman prison. We know that. And he didn't know that if any time, this is what he was concerned about, at any time Nero Caesar would kill him. He said, "I, I, I since I feel like a sacrifice of faith being poured out, tested in my service of faith, but I am full of joy and rejoicing with all of you at Philippi. What made Paul continue, church? His faith in Christ. His unwavering faith in Christ. You see, sometimes we're like Paul. I'm at my wit's end. My finances aren't intact. I'm struggling to pay bills. My job is barely hanging on. I mean, I'm losing the house. This happens to Christians. I'm about to be laid off. I'm about to be fired. I mean, the the scenario runs. What do I do? We do what Paul says. Hold on to Jesus. I'm like a poured out offering. You see, Jesus was poured out for us. And now we go through a little trial. This is what Paul uh, thought of himself in this Roman prison. He wanted so much to be with the church at Philippi and the rest. And yet, remember what we've been sharing? In prison for two years, Paul wrote four prison epistles. God had a purpose and a plan. One of those prison epistles is this to the book or to the church at Philippi. I'm poured out. But Paul is saying here, but we hang on because of faith. We hang on because God has given us the promise of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's going to lead us and, and, and teach us all things. Again, earlier he says, we're lights now. Hang on to the light. <laughs> you ever heard somebody say, you know, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And then some other Christian, yes, yeah, it's, it's a train coming the other way. But you know, there is. Because the Bible says that God will never give us any more than we can handle. And I know what you're saying. I can't handle it no more. Give it to Jesus. He goes on. Look at verse 18. Uh, For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice for me. Paul's telling the church at Philippi, rejoice for me. He says, don't be sad for me. Yes, I'm being poured out like a, a, a drink offering. But don't be sad for me. Rejoice with me. Have joy in your hearts for me. Paul is saying it's God's will that I'm going through this. A lot of churches don't like to teach that. Go back to Job chapter 1 and 2 and tell me, was Job in God's will? Yes. Man, look at you, Job, his wife said. You're a mess. You're sitting there with sackcloth and ashes. You got boils from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. The best you can do is you got a piece of pottery and you're just scratching yourself. You ever had a rash and you just, the doctor says, quit scratching. They'll even put gloves on you. But boy, you find every which way and, you know, go up against a tree or whatever it does. That's all he could do. His wife said, curse the God that you serve. And what did he respond? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be The name of the Lord. And so Paul had his trials. We're going to read that Epaphroditus had his trials. We know that uh, Timothy, he had his trials. He was ready to check out of being the pastor there at Ephesus. It was not easy. It's never easy being a, a, you know, being a poured out sacrifice. A drink offering. A sacrifice of faith. You see, God is in control of my life. God is in control of your life. The Bible says he'll never leave me nor forsake me. But we're called to be a sacrifice unto God. Listen, a living sacrifice. We've read this many times. I want you to turn to it because it just fits here so beautifully. In the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul is saying, in the midst of my trials, the same reason you'll also be glad for me. I rejoice with you. Rejoice with me now. So Paul tells the church at Rome that we're called to be a living sacrifice. Now, it's going to set up beautifully here. In Romans 12, look at verse 1. I beseech you. The word is, I beg you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Then look at verse 2. And do not be conformed uh, to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and that acceptable and perfect will of God. God wants to change me. God wants to change you. Don't be fashioned. The word is conformed. Don't be fashioned to this world. You're in the world, but you're not part of it. God calls you to separation from the world now. Because he's changing you. He's transforming you. He says, but be ye transformed. The word is metamorphosis. It starts up here. A lot of times people think Christianity, if I just change the outward man. Oh, you're going to look sharp. You're going to look good. You might even bathe and you smell good now. But what about the inward person? Has that changed? I love this scripture because it was part of my life 28 years ago. It is still part of my life today. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, let me just paraphrase this real quick. Paul says concerning your salvation. If any man, if any woman be in Christ, he or she is a new creation, a new creature in Christ. Behold, all things are passed away. All things become new. Metamorphosis, change. Peter says, man, get out of the milk of the word and get into the meat of the word. Mature in Christ. You've been a Christian now five years. Grow in him. Man, when I got saved, somebody told me, you need to read the Gospel of John. I read it. I went back to church. I said, I've read it. What do I read now? Read the book of Acts. I read the book of Acts. What do I do now? Go back to the gospel of John and then read the gospel of John and then read the book of Acts. And I did that. Try to understand the life of Christ and then try to understand the early church in the book of Acts. You're going to grow. You're going to grow in Christ. God desires to transform us, to change us. When you look at 2 Corinthians five seventeen, if any man's in Christ, he's a new creature, a new creation. God changes you. Remember your science class back in grade school or high school, whenever you saw it? I think we were about sixth or seventh grade. And remember that old slug, that slimy slug and... And the teacher was teaching us, you know, that it's going to change. It's going to transform. It's going to create a cocoon. And then it's going to come out of that cocoon a butterfly. You go, no way. You watch that snail, that slug, and it just was ugly and slimy. That's us before we come to Christ. I remember we had that cocoon. I, I didn't learn a lot in school, but I remember that. I loved it. Because we would come in every morning and we would look at the cocoon. It was still intact. It was still intact. But one day, we come into the classroom and the teacher was there waiting for us. And she opened the door, let us in one at a time. I didn't know what was going on. Well, the cocoon had uh, opened. And the butterfly was in our classroom flying around. And we saw that empty cocoon. And we remember that slug. And we see this, you know, butterflies are beautiful. That's what God does in our life. And some of us were pretty bad slugs. He makes a beautiful butterfly. A new creation in Christ Jesus. And so Paul is setting this up for the church at Philippi. Because he's going to speak about obedience brings you to a servant's heart. And this is Timothy. And then he's going to speak about Epaphroditus. So let's go to our next portion of the text, verses 19 through 24. He commends now Timothy. Paul had such a relationship and such a joy. He took this kid under his wing. He was Paul's protege. He was Paul's son, listen, in the spirit. We know that Timothy was raised by his mom and his grandma in the Lord. Now, either his dad just wasn't in the picture or part of it, or his dad's dead or has gone away. We don't know. But listen to what he says here. He begins in verse 19. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy uh, to you shortly that I also may be encouraged when I know your state of affairs. I want to know what's going on at Philippi. You see, Epaphroditus had come and given Paul a financial gift and a report of the Philippians. But uh, Epaphroditus stayed now. But now Paul wants to send Timothy and then send Timothy back so I can know what's going on with you Philippians. And so notice Paul's heart here. Now, this is important. Paul did not trust Timothy, but he trusted the Lord to send Timothy. I like that because we are all instruments. We are all tools of the Lord to be used for his glory. Timothy was the messenger for Paul uh, there in prison. Timothy would return to inform Paul of the Philippian state of affairs. Epaphroditus, basically the same, but he never went back because he got ill. You're going to see that in just a minute. But notice how he picks Timothy. In verse 20, he says, for I have no one like-minded. We spoke of that like-mindedness last week, the humility of Christ. For I have no one like-minded who will uh, sincerely care for your state. You see, there's a lot of Christians. The church is full. But there's only certain ones that, uh, that take on the call of God. I believe we're all called. But there's only one, two or three that are going to step out and say, here am I, Lord, use me. And so Timothy was like-minded. The mind of Christ, we shared that last week. The humility of Christ, we shared that last week. Timothy's testimony, because Timothy, listen, he had care and concern for others. Last week in verse 4, the care and the concern for others. And we read out of Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. It says, bear ye one another's burdens. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, it said, care for the interest of others. And that's what we did last week, church. The turkeys were collected. The boxes were put together. And we cared for the interests of others. But here's the beautiful part. That was last week. This week, if people knock on our door, people call the church, we're going to reach out for the interest of others. I mean, because of your giving, because of your support to this ministry, there's people we've helped uh, to help in their electric bill because they didn't have it. Even paying a partial point of it. We've helped for somebody to get a bus ticket from here, you know, back east, or from here to the west coast. We've had a family to come and knock on the door and we have nowhere to stay. And so we'll put them up at the motel six for overnight. The church pays for that. And the church gets blessed for it. God sees the heart of man. Remember Matthew chapter 25? When I was in prison, did you visit me? When I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was thirsty, did you give me to drink? And there, wait a minute, Jesus, when were you any of these things? And you did it to the least. You did it unto me. Timothy was like-minded, the mind of Christ. Look at verse 21. For all seek their own, their own interests, selfish ambitions. We spoke of that last week. But not the things which are of Christ. Basically, man thinks about himself. Remember the old adage, me, myself, and I. It's so true. I didn't care about people until I came to Christ. I didn't care about those in prison, in jail, until I came to Christ. You think in the world I thought about giving a Thanksgiving basket to Joe Doe down the street? No way. Hey, go get your own burger, man. That's our concept. But then God moves on our hearts, church. God had moved on Paul's heart. God had moved on Timothy's heart. God had moved on Epaphroditus' heart. And then he describes, or or he describes uh, Timothy here. Notice in verse 22. But you know his proven character. The Philippians obviously knew who Timothy was. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this is what Paul is saying. You know how Timothy was proved uh, himself, was tested, his character is upright. Like a son with his father, he has helped me in the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He called him his spiritual son. Timothy was Paul's son in the spirit, and Paul, a father uh, in Christ to Timothy in the spirit. Guy had a testimony, church. Look at verse 23. Therefore, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me here. And so Paul was concerned. He's incarcerated. And he's saying, let's find out what the courts say. You see, Paul didn't know which way he was going to go. We know that in the second imprisonment that Nero does have Paul beheaded. But here he's contemplating, well, let's see how it goes with me. As soon as the Roman courts come to a conclusion, but I have to say this, church. Yes, the civil authorities. Yes, I have to go to court. Yes, I have to stand uh, before a judge or my peers uh, before a jury. But Paul is saying here, yet I'm going to trust God. I'm going to trust God. Man, you better trust God. Man will always fail you. I have to trust God. Paul trusted God. Timothy trusted God. Epaphroditus trusted God. And so listen to what he says now. In verse 24, but I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Paul wanted to go back and visit them once he got out of prison. Now, we're told historically that he did. I couldn't find a scripture that said he was actually there with them. But it's believed that Paul did go back. But Paul had this confidence. He had this security in his heart, his surety in his heart that God was going to take him back and God was going to sustain him. Now, verse 25, through the conclusion, we come to this other gentleman, Epaphroditus. He's a Greek man, and he comes to saving grace. And Paul lifts this man up, too, as as he did Timothy. And Epaphroditus had come already and ministered to Paul there in the Roman prison, the house of rest, and took care of Paul's needs, but he brought a financial gift from the church at Philippi. But something happens to Epaphroditus. Now watch this. In verse 25 it says. Yet I considered it necessary to send to you. Epaphroditus my brother. And then he describes his character. Fellow worker and fellow soldier. But he says but your messenger. And the one who ministered to my need. The Philippian church had already sent. Epaphroditus. And so. He wants to send him back. But I want to see here. He described him as a fellow co-worker. I like this. And a fellow co-laborer, a soldier in Christ. Now I was thinking of the word soldier. It speaks of a military term. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus Uh, In chapter 6, we fight not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and rulers of darkness of this world. Paul spoke about a spiritual battle, a spiritual warfare. And so Paul includes uh, Epaphroditus here, excuse me, that he was also one that uh, fought spiritual battles. Timothy had his spiritual battle. You've been a Christian long enough, you are going to have spiritual warfare. He says he was a co-laborer with me. He was a co-laboring soldier with me. He came to, as a messenger, and he ministered to my needs. And Paul's going to want to send him back. He was a brother-servant. Verse 26, listen. Since he was longing for you, those at church at Philippi, and was distressed, Here shows uh, Epaphroditus's heart. He was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. He didn't even want them to know that. You ever gone somewhere? Maybe a vacation. Maybe you went to go do some work, and you get there and you're sick, and you can't do nothing. It's miserable. You go, you know, to your family to visit, and you get there and you're sickly. You're miserable. This is Epaphroditus, and it bummed him out that they knew he was sick. (laughs) He was in distress because he had heard that they had heard. (laughs) That made heaviness in his heart. That's what the Greek is saying. Verse 25, for indeed he was sick, Paul says, almost unto death, but God had mercy on him. Not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Paul's saying, hey, not only was he in distress, so was I. Hey, Lord, this man comes to minister to me, and then he gets sick. He almost died. That would have been heavy on Paul's heart. He comes to minister to me, and he dies? On his gravestone, he came to help Paul, then he died? Paul says, I don't want to live without the rest of my life. So he was thanking the Lord also. Indeed, he was sick. We don't know what Epaphroditus had. Maybe he got sick on the way. I mean, in those days, the travel, the food, the water. Did he have a virus, a parasite? You know, a number of things. It doesn't tell us. Verse 28 says, therefore, I sent him the more eagerly now. He's well, he's, he, he's content, he's, you know, spiritually sound now, physically sound. That when you see him again, you may rejoice and I be, may be the less sorrowful. He was getting ready to send him back. Lightfoot in his translation says this, that he may recover your cheerfulness. And I think because it was recovering Paul's cheerfulness, Oh, thank you, Lord. I thought Epaphroditus was going to go home to be with you. I know that's better, Lord, but you know, you're know you going to send him back now. He's, he's physically okay. And so about joy, it must have really drove Paul to his knees. It saddened Paul's heart. Again, somebody comes to care for you and then they get sick. You feel bad enough that they come, and you're humbled enough that they come, and then now they're caring for you, and then all of a sudden they're worse than what you are. This was Paul's heart. And so Paul says about Epaphroditus when he's going to send him back, Verse 29, Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men. Epaphroditus, Timothy, others that are servants of the Lord, hold such men in esteem. When Epaphroditus gets there, welcome him. Might as well throw Timothy. When Timothy gets there, welcome him. Love him. Serve them. I mean, the list goes on. Always giving God the glory. Esteem them. Lift them up unto the Lord. It's not to parade them around. Hey, look at this guy. He's a servant of the Lord. Let's put a big S on his chest. No. Again, we don't walk around with a big H in our chest saying humility. But it's part of my life. It's part of your life. Servanthood is part of my life. It should be part of your life. He comes to the conclusion because in verse 30, he says, because for the work of Christ, he, he came close to death. So maybe on the way there, he got sick. We're not sure. Not regarding his own life, but to come to supply what was lacking in your service towards me. I think Epaphroditus had that bag of money from Philippi. He probably had some good, well, wishing words, you know, for for Paul. The church of Philippi says, here you go, brother. And maybe he got there and he was just so down because it hurt Paul. You see, Epaphroditus, according to the translation, he risked his life for the work of Christ. I think of my brothers, my sisters that are in third world countries such as Asia. And being a Christian in India is not a popular thing. Uh, being a Christian in the Sudan is not a popular thing. And so you think of these things that they're going through. And this is what Paul was speaking about. Now we come to the conclusion, obedience produces servants. I want to end with this passage of Scripture. Turn with me to the book of Acts and let's go to chapter 6 now let me set this up the book of acts chapter 6 the early church is taking off it's estimated that the church after acts chapter 2 is anywhere between 10 to 20,000 it has exploded and remember there's 12 men that are doing the teaching the ministering the praying the caring And there's this dispute that arises. And this is setting up now servants. The word is diakonos. A diakonos is one that cleans tables, the one that waits on tables, the one that does the menial tasks. But notice as he begins here, it's the early church. And the leaders say, choose among you seven men uh, to serve. He begins in verse 1. Now, in those days, uh, when the the number of the disciples were multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, or the Greeks. He says, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Verse 2 goes on, and when the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave uh, the word of God and to serve tables. Now, they weren't saying anything wrong here, but imagine if there's 10 or 20,000. There's a lot of ministering to do concerning the word of God. And so he says here, So beautifully, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and to serve tables. Verse three, therefore, brethren, seek out from among you a seven men of good reputation, that their testimony is intact. And then look at the rhetorical word here, full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. Whom we may appoint over this business, the taking care of, uh, of the widows. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Verse 5 goes on. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen. Stephen becomes the first deacon of the church. And then we read later, he becomes the first martyr of the church. To Stephen, a man full of faith. And again, it's rhetorical. Full of the Holy Spirit. And then they chose Philip Prochorus. Nicanor, Timon, uh, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And verse 6 says, Whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. And then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Many were coming to saving grace. But look at verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and full of power, did great wonders, miracle signs and wonders, among the people. Here's the beauty. These guys were called the first deacons uh, of the church. The first diaconos. No titles, basically. But in the Greek, they took care of the menial task. While the twelve, and we know that Judas had hung himself. So Matthias becomes the twelfth. But then we read on and we find out that Paul was the apostle born out of due season. But these men were servants. Now, because the way the Bible is written, it always speaks of the masculine. But ladies, you know this. And the women that were deaconesses, if you can use the term, were many. That's what you're studying on Monday nights. The beauty of that. There was women that were servants of the Lord. Remember when they went to check the empty tomb, the men weren't there. It was Mary Magdalene, the woman with seven demons that were cast out of her. Don't never neglect that God doesn't use the women. Oh, yes, He does. Sometimes in a greater place than the men. But obedience, church, obedience will bring you Obedience will produce a servant's heart. We come to obedience in Christ. We come to obedience in the being led by the power of the Holy Spirit. We come to obedience in in His Word, and His Word tells us what to do. And then we make application. And God calls us to serve. Church, there's many capacities of being a servant. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, and he says, in a great body, and then he uses the anatomy. He's speaking about the body of Christ. He says, but in that great body, there's many functions. And so he describes the, uh, the human body. Uh, there's a hand. There's a thumb. There's a foot. There's a toe. I mean, what good would your body be if you were one toe? Wouldn't work, right? You got all the other beautiful parts of our body. Well, Lord, I don't understand why we have two ears. Why don't you just put one right there? Well, go around. Put one there, a ver. You know, get Mr. Potato Head's ear. <laughs> pin it there. Let's see how it goes off. Some of you don't even know who Mr. Potato Head is. <laughs> but God made us unique. We're all part of the body of Christ. You cannot all be the pastor of the church as well as you cannot all be the usher, all be the sound man, all be the children's church. But there's different parts of the body of Christ. Find out your niche. I would challenge you. Go home tonight and pray, Lord, what is it you want me to do? Now, hang on to your hat. Don't be surprised. God will tell you. Oh, not me. Oh, yes, you. Ask God. I sat there at a simple little meeting. 28 years ago after coming to Saving Grace. And I said, Lord, what do you want me to do? I want you to go to prison, and I want you to go to jail ministries. Is there anything else you want me to do, Lord? (laughs) And I remember when God said, I want you to go with your wife. She's going to go help in the children's church. I want you to go help. I go, thank you, Lord. And what do they do? Stick me in with the babies. (laughs) Now, I didn't mind my own kids throwing up on me, but there's something about other kids throwing up on you. I remember my prayer. Lord, send me back to the prison and jails. At least they won't throw up on you. But find out your niche. Find out what God's called you to do. And you know, we've got a bunch of young kids now that are uh, going to start working in, in, in the music ministry with Wallace. And he's developing them slowly. But this, praise God, that's what it's all about. We all have a part in the body of Christ. It starts with salvation. It starts with obeying God's word, watching Him lead you and guide you into all truth.